2: an Erio's original.
3: Especially now that I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but it seems like weirdness is being mainstreamed a little. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the like original weirdos who were truly pilloried, like, I don't know, like I feel like a certain sense of pride. It's like I was weird before it was okay to be weird. Yeah.
0: And I said, you know, this guy has done, He's, he's good. he's a really good artist. But he's done more than just be a good artist. He's affected change. He's changed the way people think about themselves.
2: It's over my dreams, waking me out. I think I'm coming
4: apart. Hi, I'm Margaret Cho. Welcome to the Margaret Cho, where we talk to people you know and people you should know. And I really would encourage you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because we only have a few reviews and we really need more. And uh, it would be great to hear from you. And if you do review us, I will read you on air like this one um, from uh, Bunny Rabbit. It's a candy for my soul. This podcast feels like a night with close friends, Rosé and PJs, except I get to take that feeling with me to work. So... If you write a review, I will read it. How's that? Please leave us a 5-star review. Thank you. My guest today is somebody you really should know. Diablo Cody is really incredible, and she came over to have a nice talk. Yeah,
2: coming out of the dark. Oh.
4: Thank you for coming over. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. I get so excited like when i hear about you and i see you and i remember the first time i saw you actually was on the oscars and when somebody like you is on the oscars it's like it's either you or like tegan and sarah or amy Mann or even like kumail nanjani like when i see you guys like there i'm like oh my god it's like are we establishment i think we're establishment <laughs>
3: I mean, I definitely didn't feel like establishment at the time. I just felt like I had, like, stress, diarrhea, and fear. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it was de- it was certainly the closest I've ever veered toward that uh, establishment boundary, I think.
4: Yeah, I mean, because it is, like, that's really the ultimate. I think after that, you're really defined by that award, you know? Yeah, oh, totally. You know? For better or for worse. Like, it's, it's kind of cool because, like, I, I still get
3: work- Because of it, people Mm -hmm. want to be able to say, oh, we've attached a writer who has an Oscar, Mm -hmm. regardless of if they're actually a fan of any of my output since then. Mm -hmm. So that just from like a crass business perspective, it's been very beneficial. But Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, other than that, it's
4: like fucking winning class president. Like it counts that year and then it's invalid. I don't think I think it's always it's always valid because it's such a. It's such a competitive thing because that's kind of the thing that everybody in this industry, wherever they're coming from, whether it's writing or producing or directing or, you know, even like all of the the many, many categories you can be nominated in one for. It's like the one thing that everybody is trying to get. You know? And I don't think I even realized how, because
3: I was like, I was like new to the business when it happened, which made it Mm. extra surreal. So I didn't realize how obsessed, like Lord of the Rings style obsessed people are with Oscars. Yeah. Like people in this town want them badly. Yeah. And that certainly was never my goal going in. I didn't think I was ever going to win a fucking Webby or whatever. Like I never thought I was going to win an Oscar. So Mm -hmm. for me, it just kind of happened. And it wasn't until after it happened that I realized that it like, sparked these obsessive feelings in other people
4: yeah because it's the thing that is recognition on a level that is both establishment but also your peers you know and so it it, it's it's meaningful and it's meaningful and you know and, and I think that there are so many different ways to uh be renowned in in this in this day and age there's so many different ways to have sort of be recognized. But I think like having an Oscar, it's that kind of old school, but at the same time, very cool. It's definitely old school. I mean, I kind of have a theory that like people
3: might have voted for me because they didn't know me. And like, I think people hate votes sometimes like they they know all the other people in the category, like maybe that's their friend or that's their peer, that's their competitor, and they don't want that person to win. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't want my friend to win an Oscar because then I'm going to feel less than. Mm -hmm. So I'll just vote for this person. I don't know. Is that like a completely I, dark theory?
4: <laughs> I don't know because, no, I don't know. I think that like when the the, the writing category, it's really, um, it's one of those things where I feel like that's the hardest one because writing is like where everything begins. Writing is where the project exists most fully, you know? And, and so it's the one that you you can't deny somebody's real like innovative work. You can't deny somebody's, um, legacy, really, you know? Yeah. I think maybe in other categories, maybe like director seems a little bit less objective. Like director seems more like that you would hate voter. It, or it's like political or
3: it's about the person as opposed to the...
4: Right. Yeah, sometimes people get Oscars because, or by default because somebody else, like actors, they they get like Oscars because of what they've contributed over their lifetime. Oh,
3: completely. And it, with with actors, it's always about like... It's, it's this person's turn. Like, mm-hmm. if Amy Adams gets nominated again, she's going to win, regardless yeah. of what she gets nominated for, because people are ready to see Amy Adams get her Oscar. Right. Like, it's time now. Yeah. yeah. And then director and picture have become completely political, because it becomes about, like, well, we're going to give... This person best picture and this person best like they, they'll split it mm-hmm. like I don't know but you're it is I mean the Oscars are a crazy game I mean they it's just it's such a weird freaking tradition but
4: it is but it's also the one that is kind of like nobody can deny the supreme power that that one award that one thing has over I mean every aspect of it whether it's you know who's going to win or or sort of who's who didn't win who got snubbed like the you know we've like these last few years of, like, just Oscar So White and all of these, like, kind of things or, you know, the La La Land upset over Moonlight. You know, there's yeah, it's very politicized. I I mean, you know, I just think it's a really, it's an interesting thing of, like, where show business is. Yeah. And where we're going and what it means. Things are definitely in flux. I mean, I wonder,
3: like, do you think that, like the average 19-year-old in the business still thinks of the Oscars as like
4: some very cool thing to aspire to? I think so. I feel like they do. I mean, I think that the way that I see, at least for me, like when I was like that young actress in Hollywood, I, w- I had the same agent as, um, as Amira Servino. And I would get, I, I remember like, I think I drank a whole bottle of Absolute Citrone and Mira Servino Cerv- went for Mighty Aphrodite. And uh, I called my agent super drunk and I was like, it's my turn next. <laughs> I think I had like what, uh, you know, I'd watch Marissa Tomei win it. And now I was going, now I had to, you know, claim it. And so, you know, when I think when you're young and like you think like anything is possible, maybe that would be, I think everybody, all the kids now want an EGOT. When yeah, the, man. Emmy, like
3: wait to aim Grammy,
4: Oscar. <laughs> it's hard to get Os- Oscar Tony because it's all of the different, because you would have to do it in recording. You would have in you know no, it's really it's it's incredibly hard. Like I think the the hardest
3: one of the hardest uh, um, component of the EGOT to get has to be the Tony, right? That is the hardest. That's what I think. And also, so my my friend and I had a, a long EGOT conversation recently where we were talking about who has the purest EGOT, meaning their Oscar wasn't like for producing something. Ooh. Like who has like the and it the answer was. um it was like Chita Rivera or something. Oh, maybe was- Rita
4: Moreno. Rita Moreno. Sorry. I think I think yeah. you're right. I think that she does have the purest EGOT because, well, I think because she really excels in all of these. She different- was a performer in each one of those disciplines right. as opposed
3: to like, listen, no shade to John Legend. But like yeah. he has an EGOT. And but like a couple of the awards are for like being involved in a project. Right. As, anyway,
4: because, well, I mean, he's great, but I don't think that he is uh, really an actor Right. A definitely producer, definitely, um, of course, singer-songwriter. And that's what he, he won for that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he does a lot of different things. It's very diverse. But I don't think it's... Um, yeah, I think that it is the purest. Rita Moreno, like, really did it. Yeah. Yeah. She's fabulous, too. I mean, she's so... Uh, she's energetic and uh, dynamic in a way that you would think like this sort of, like, multidisciplined star, which is what I my always aspire to that kind of a stardom of like hers or maybe a Debbie Reynolds. Oh, I <laughs> love Debbie Reynolds. Yeah, where you would have like a Broadway show that you could do all of these different things. And um, the only thing that I know about Rita Moreno uh, is that she's always cold.
3: Like temperature-wise? Yeah, temperature, I did not know that.
4: Like every, she always has a lot of clothes on because she's always cold. Interesting. That's the only thing that have I Have you know.
3: worked with her or you just heard that I've as worked like an with anecdote? Her. Okay, that's and cool.
4: And then she, um, she was really cold and it was really hot outside, so... She's wow. just temperature. Maybe she's just like from a different uh, a, a warmer planet. <laughs> <laughs> I like that theory. But I love that like um when I think back about Juno and that year and you um introduced the world to moldy peaches. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. And Michael I love Sarah. And yeah.
3: Michael Sarah just Michael like Sarah. A wonderful weirdo.
4: And and also like this thing of like is he a child or he is he a, a man like he's a very interesting kind of uh like an actor study of like is this hot this is hot I mean he there's a reason why he was
3: cast to play sort of a a boy that I loved mm-hmm. you know in that in that film because I I, I personally find that hot yeah me too <laughs> like totally. I love a
4: I love a sensitive man. But I love like a be- sensitive
3: hairless man.
4: Yeah, being in like a, a I always sort of fantasize like maybe I'm in a band with Michael Sarah. like that would be kind of like the, the ultimate like a two person band, much like the Moldy Peaches. That yeah, maybe, you know that seems like a sort of a romantic thing. Like this, the, the we are a band together, and we're just very pale.
3: Yeah, I I mean that sounds amazing. Honestly, I would be I I felt intimidated by him. And I was like 30 and he was like 18 when we made that movie. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want him to like me. I want him to be my friend. Yeah. So it's like, I understand. Like, I'd love to be in a band with him. I would feel cool.
4: You just, you just feel like he sort of ups the stake because it's like, there's very in the world as I see it, there's a few legitimate weirdos. Oh, yeah. You know, few. There, I think a lot of times weird is something that we project onto people that we don't understand. But a lot of times the weirdness can be really explained away into like trying to find a new way to get attention, trying to make yourself different in order to um, maybe like, I don't know, be cast in something. Um, the legitimate weirdo is hard to find. That is true, especially now
3: that I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but it seems like weirdness is being mainstreamed a little. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, like, original weirdos who were truly pilloried, like, I don't know, like, I feel like a certain sense of pride. It's like, like, I was weird before it was okay to be weird. Yeah,
4: yeah. I think you were weird, but you were weird in a way that was really emotional and naked, that was not manufactured, that was real, That was real, and that's why people responded to your writing so much, because it was like this weirdness that, we can see into that because it ignites another part of us that's like, oh my gosh, this is my my life. This is my weirdness too. This is my everything.
3: I wish I could have honestly like covered that up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like I wish I had been less vulnerable mm. and been a little more conscientious about protecting myself at that time. But yeah. now I am like, no, I'm totally fucking underground now. I don't go anywhere. Like mm-hmm. I don't even want anyone to have an opinion about me. I just like keep it.
4: Well, then it's like – then it, and then you can just work on your writing and have your characters feel all those things.
3: Yeah, that's all I care about, honestly. All I ever wanted to do was be a writer. So to be a professional writer, like, that's it. That's all I need. Mm-hmm. I don't need any, like, any measure of visibility or anything like that.
4: Yeah. But the trappings of, like, persona, it's almost like you you can't be anything now unless you're in it with your whole self. Like, people, like – Oh, yeah. Use their personalities as a brand – And they used to sell whatever they do with that personality. Well, the thing with the social media,
3: I, I, I know it's like a conversation that's been beat to death, but it's like fascinating to me that like people like back in the early days of the Internet, you know, I was like a blogger. And at the time, it was considered incredibly like eccentric to put your your emotions online. Yeah. And to, to share things about your life like that was seen as like you were some kind of like pathological oversharer, and now someone who's like really famous can be on Instagram crying because mm-hmm. of something that happened with their kids earlier that day. Yeah. or le- And it's like, it's just, people are just like, wow, we love this like raw naked show of vulnerability from mm-hmm. blank. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just become a, it's become a thing where it, and it's, it is true. Like there is no, like mystique is not the thing anymore. Now yeah. it's about like, how much of myself can I give to consumers right and that is currency Mm -hmm.
4: yeah and it's weird it's weird I mean I'm glad to not be a kid now because I think that would be a lot of pressure like a lot of you know like all of you know all the dumb things we do as kids and like you know having the internet to do that with I think it would just be too much I
3: the, the story I always tell on this tip is that my friend and I there used to be like a like a discount store in our town called Venture, and there was a photo booth in Venture, and we would go into the photo booth, take our shirts off, take pictures, mm-hmm. and then run into the parking lot and hand them to a random guy and like <laughs> run away laughing. <laughs> oh so God. this guy would then have a picture of us in like our bras, uh-huh. and we're like we're like fifteen or sixteen, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm like, take those two girls who are clearly desperate for some kind of yeah attention or, or validation, and then put them in today's mm-hmm. era. What what would we have been doing? Yeah. Like, yeah.
4: it's just, like, it's terrifying to me. It's, yeah, it's so scary. I mean, when I was 15, every time I walked by a car and there was someone in it, most likely it would be a man jerking off. Like, yeah. almost always. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't even remember, like, walking by cars with somebody, with a man in it where they weren't jerking off. I Like, I don't remember yeah. the ones where they weren't, but they I always just remember were. The They just were. It's so weird. And then as a teenage girl, I was just very, like, confused by it. Like, they have a... Teenage girls have a lot of, um, so much to deal with and they're like trying to figure out like, how do we have control over it? So maybe that like taking those selfies, taking those photos or a photo booth or whatever, Something would be some way to manage it. Somehow. It was completely some kind of
3: like trauma management. Completely. Because yeah. I've never gotten more male attention in my life than I did when I was like thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. As fucked up as that is. No,
4: but like it's true. that you're
3: just like completely targeted at that age. Yeah. Because you're weak and like people are gross. Yeah. And like I think it was just like, yeah, like
4: we're gonna be in control of this narrative
3: today and, mm-hmm. and give out these
4: photos. Definitely, because at least like we're doing it and it's a way that we can control it and make it fun for ourselves as opposed to the onslaught of of it that we get. Yes. You know, and um, yeah, I would have been thinking a lot about that. Time. I mean, I think, well, I'm a little older than you. So like my era, the movie um, Little Darlings had just come out. Yeah. And um, which is all about uh, Tatum O'Neill and Christy McNichol having a contest in who could have sex with Armand Asante, <laughs> <laughs> which is really weird because, uh, you know, if you look at the movie now, it's like he's in his probably th- late 30s, early 40s. And um, it's, it's like this comedy but it's about, you know, young girls trying to uh, maybe use their sexuality and in, in trying to figure out a way to control it or something. But yeah, like the male attention that I received at like 13, 14, 15 was so, um, I remember like walking through the park and um, this man was walking towards me, but it was like, you know, I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deviate my path because I don't want to look scared. I don't want to look scared. I don't want to look scared. And as I passed him, he pulled out just one testicle, but I wasn't sure what it was Mm -hmm. because it was purple and small. I thought it was a plum. Mm -hmm. And stone fruits were in season. So I was like, why is he showing me a soft plum? (laughs) Soft plum. And then I told my friend Karen Kilgariff about it. She's like, soft plum. That sounds like a new sweater that's at the gap. A (laughs) collar, soft plum. (laughs) You want it in soft plum? No. But I mean, you know, like that thing of like, also, the defiance of a a little, you know, a young girl saying, I don't want to look scared.
3: Yeah. No, I think that was really what it was about, because honestly, I was terrified a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've, I I've think maybe that attitude just sort of carried into adulthood too. this idea of like, I'm just going to like, I'm just going to be sort of the aggressor mm-hmm. in a way. And then you can't you can't hurt me.
4: Right. Right, that that's true. It's like the power of like trying to um, control it first, like make the first move, like you can't hurt me if I yeah, do it first. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It is scary. Yeah. It's scary. scary out there. It is, but it's, I mean, it is something that we can make sense of as artists, as writers.
3: That's the thing. Like that's, that's the only way that I can process anything is by writing my way through it. So that's what I do.
4: Mm-hmm. And that's good. Yeah. That's good. I think like um, for me, like writing has always been this feeling of uh, at least I can control it but then I kind of come up to a blank like I get to a point of like where is this even going like what am I doing and then do you just let yourself just go and then write it and then come back and try to like make sense of it or you just how do you do it I you know it's
3: I've had to sort of retrain myself because it, it depends on the project if it's something that's like strictly a passion project strictly something that I need to do for you know for emotional reasons or or whatever that's then I'm just like, I'm like Jackson Pollock or something. I'm just like throwing it, like yeah. throwing it at the wall mm-hmm. and, and you know, creating these sort of like disconnected, wild, like first drafts and stuff like that. And I'm just like letting the story take me where I want it to take me. And then if I'm being like paid to do something, then I think I have to be like a little bit more structured and treat it like a task, mm-hmm. which honestly, like,
4: it's not my favorite thing, but we all
3: have to work. Yeah, and then <laughs> so, you
4: can apply, I mean, you yeah. apply it to like, it's, I mean, obviously people want you for your voice though. So it's like your, the projects that I, I mean, I've seen that I really get excited about you on. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Like when you're like working with Tig. Oh like, yeah. Oh, that's perfect. That you was, know? that was special. That's really special because it's a vision that is really, I mean, it, it is so different. And so, um, I don't know, it's so funny, but it's also like funny in a way that is so new too. like, and her approach is so dry and so subdued, but you know, really forceful as well. Cause you're just like living in her world. So yeah. I love that. I mean, I, there's nothing
3: I love more than, like, a super specific artist. I know a lot of chameleons mm-hmm. in this business, and yeah. it's like, that's great, and it's it's probably very lucrative, but, like, it's great working with someone like Tig, who is so specifically Tig, mm-hmm. is not going to do anything but that. Right. And it's like, I know this is going to be great, and it's like the kind of great only you can be. hmm So that's – I mean, that's those are my favorite kind of things to work on. And it's why, like, I don't I, – I honestly, like, fail spectacularly anytime I try to work on, like, a big studio film, because that's always about, like – We've had 18 writers on this, mm-hmm. and we, we need to figure out how to – And we, we need you to add a little bit of this, and then this guy's going to add a little bit of this, and, like, this guy worked on the Avengers, so we're going to have him do this. And it's, like it, – it just becomes this, like, nothing. Mm-hmm. It becomes a big, like, splotch of gray because you haven't let any color – any one color show itself.
4: Right, because it's like they're trying to um, appeal to so many different people at the same time, and then also it's just so many voices in this. There's so much money at stake and yeah. so many big stars, and it's like how do we make this extraordinary by uh, trying to put all these different elements in? It's it's very crazy. It is. It's like, yeah, that's why the, the whole concept of like a four-quadrant movie is like just something I don't –
3: I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. I would if I could. I'd love to be that rich, but.
4: No, but I mean, it's it's more, I think, like, yeah, you want to do stuff that is pleasing, too. That's easy to do for you. Like, if it's something that is, like, a, a, a work of, like, that's about your spirit and you're helping somebody. like, like, Tig or, I mean, I also love United States of Terror. Thank
3: you. It's so cool. I had fun on that one. I mean, it's like, that was also, though, a really Sorry, my tummy's rumbling. That was, like, a really, like, scary experience because I had never um, worked on a TV show before. Mm-hmm. So I had never – I hadn't – you know, typically the trajectory is you come up in a writer's room, you're a, a you're a script coordinator, you're a writer's assistant, then you're a staff writer, then maybe you're, like, you know, you work your way up to that level and then mm-hmm. they give you your own show. Mm-hmm. And for me, like, I had never done any of it. I had just written one feature and um, – had been very much like in the passenger seat on that because like Ooh. I wasn't the director and I was literally just happy to be like invited to set. Yeah. <laughs> like I was just excited. I was from, you know, the Midwest. So then to suddenly be like, okay, like you need to put together a writer's room. You're going to run the show, right? Like you're going to, you're going to be on set every day. I was like, I don't like, I don't even know what's expected of me in this experience. Yeah. So I was like, when I look back on it, like I, I it just feels like a very like frantic like confusing time. But
4: I love the show. It's such a great show. And it was an interesting time because at that point, television was really changing. Yeah. And you were having all of these networks really taking chances with the kind of programming that I think was really extraordinary. And that's the one show that I remember. And also to have such a great, great star in in Tony. Oh, my God. She's so brilliant. She's amazing. She really is. She's incapable of being bad. Yeah, I know everybody says, "Oh, this is peak
3: TV right now," and so much cool, interesting stuff is being made. But at the same time, like, there's certain things from that little era, mm-hmm. like Mad Men, for instance, would never get made now, right? With a cast of unknowns, mm-hmm. you would have to have George Clooney attached to play Don Draper, yeah, to get a series order on that show. Mm-hmm. And I think it's there was a time where you could actually just say, "No, there's this great guy; he is the character. Mm-hmm. Let's do this," and AMC would be like, "Sure." Yeah, you know, I don't think that yeah. happens anymore.
4: Yeah, because if you look at Mad Men, the, the, um, it's methodical. It's slow. It's really, lo- like they play the long game. They allow it to roll out. It's real out. slow. Yeah, and it's very, um, you know, you have to be patient with it. But it, it pays off, of course, obviously, because it was such a huge, huge, huge hit. But it's like, they, they um, I assume the audience would invest in the time.
3: Yeah. But and and people and people did like you can't condescend to the audience and assume that they're only going to watch it if it's a, you know, a tight 30 with a movie star that they recognize. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, people found same with Breaking Bad. Like that was a show that like rewarded people mm-hmm. and you had to like in, you had to invest time and you had to like, you know, care about these people who like were just character actors at the time. And like, I don't know, it's like it feels a little I miss that a little bit. Because now, like, I'm constantly pitching TV. Like, it's just like a constant fucking grind of trying to get something on the air. Because I have nothing happening right now, Ooh. TV-wise. And it's like, every time we go in there, it's all about, like, what talent do you have attached? And I'm just like, nobody. <laughs> like, but it, you're the talent. I, I love that you think that. You I don't are. know if I'm – I'm definitely not – I'm clear – I'm not enough to get a, a show made right now, I can
4: tell you that much. Because I've been trying and trying for three years. I've been over at Warner Brothers trying to make a show. It's a, it's a, because I mean, you know, to me, you're the star. I mean, you're your vision, but it is definitely a weird industry now because like I'm trying the same thing. Like I want to have a, an Asian American project because there's got to be one. You know, I really would love to have a show like that. But, you know, like there and there are some some projects, of course, now after Crazy Rich Asians became such a huge success, like I want to push that. But then I think like white people have already changed their minds. <laughs> so really? Some like, crazy rich Asians? I or? think so. Like, I would love to see a show like that. I would love to see something out there, but, you know, it's got to happen. You know, I really, I, I would really love to participate in this new world of TV, too. Yeah. But it's hard. It's weird. Um, and I'm trying to do some writing. And, like, for me, um, it's writing is not at, like, like when you're writing stand up comedy, it's a little bit less disciplined because it's like, for me, like, I write a lot of jokes while I'm performing because I just have to. I just kind of make it up on the spot in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because there's, like, you you really have to deliver. But, like, when I'm just sitting, like, I don't have that sort of – I don't have, like, the soul of a writer that has to get that out, you know, to sit there and, like, put it all together. Like, I just – I think that that discipline is really – I think it's really amazing.
3: I enjoy it. I feel like um, I'm actually getting less disciplined, though. Mm-hmm. I know you didn't mean discipline in that sense, but same word. I feel like I'm getting less disciplined as I get older. I'm just, like, a little – getting kind of scattered and kind of burnt out. It's like a crappy thing to admit, but I do feel like I need to get something. I need to get it back. Like I used to be much more motivated to to share my ideas with people. And right now I'm just kind of like, I don't know, I'm turning into like the dude or something. You
4: know what I mean? <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah.
4: I, I mean, kind of just want
3: to shuffle around and drink that's white Russians. Of, like that's, that's, <laughs> that's where I'm at.
4: A lot of milk. Yeah, a lot of milk. A lot of milk and a lot of – like I would love to just get – the a big sweater like that, and then just have um a lot of little like pulls in my shirts because of like the, the cherry off of the joint dropping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like
3: I kind of feel like that's the vibe I'm growing into, but I can't I can't get there yet.
4: No, I mean, it would be like either that or like I always admire um the Hunter S. Thompson thing of like all of the drugs that he would do and then have like writing in between because he would have like cocaine and halcyon and all these like crazy like Supplements to the writing. I think the problem is I
3: never got into stims. I bet Mm. if I had had like a cocaine phase, like Stephen King, Mm -hmm. who wrote entire novels, such as Christine, that he does not remember writing because he was so tweaked out. Like, m- maybe I would ha- I would have a greater body of work.
4: Yeah. Or is that like the Jack Kerouac thing of like doing it, like taking an inhaler and like putting like cotton in it? <laughs> like, Wait, what did he do? He, um Jack Kerouac, didn't he like take an inhaler and then like for asthma and then put cotton inside and wipe out the inside and then eat it and then wrote on the road? I'm going to try that. I think we have an inhaler in my house. Yeah, I think like if you know anybody that has like seasonal allergies or um, some kind of like bronchitis from allergies, that you should like hit them up. And But yeah, stimulants definitely are... Uh, probably a conducive to writing that in like coffee, but yeah. it's it's not sustainable. And I don't think that you can write as thoughtfully. I mean, your writing is so thoughtful and emotional and close to the heart. So I don't know if um, yeah. you could get there. That's the problem. You're right. I would blow past all the good stuff. Yeah. Because yours is really about the tenderness yeah. and also the tenderness and the truth. So it would be hard and humor in that. So it would be hard to do like that kind of like um, output. Yeah. You know, it's got to be somewhat more of an internal thing. I think. I mean, it, yeah, I, I think I'm just
3: going to have to like stick to what it is to my process now, which is like sitting around like stewing in my feelings and then exercising. Yeah, then. and
4: pulling it, pulling yeah. it from there, um, which is um, it's definitely harder, but it's certainly much more rewarding. Yeah, and then you, then you see what you have to, you know. Do you ever like go back and look at what you've done and be like, "Oh yes, this is right." Like, aren't you excited? Like, you get excited about it. Like, I I do. Like, I so you. I, that's what I wanted to ask because you must be incredibly proud.
3: Like, when you consider your body of work.
4: Yeah, like I look back and I'm like, oh, and then I realize, oh, I lost my way somewhere. Like, I think I was like really good until probably about 2005, and then I think I like lost my way and I have to find my way back. So. Do you feel like you're in the process of doing that? I think so. Yeah, I'm trying, to, starting to get there. It's it's a little bit harder. But like, I definitely think, um, I, I think that like when I was younger, I was so much better than I am now. And I'm like, where, why was I so good then? And I, I didn't know anything then. And now I know more and I'm not as good. It's weird.
3: I, I vacillate. Like sometimes I'm like, I used to be, especially when I go back and read some of the Pro, like unpublished kind of prose writing I did when I was younger, I'm like, oh, I was better than, like I was sharper. Mm-hmm. But then um, I would say like the, the movie that I've worked on that I'm the most proud of is Tully. And that was, you know, mm-hmm. recent, but mm-hmm. nobody saw it. Mm-hmm. So it feels like it's just not valid because it had no audience. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's the fucking point then?
4: But it's it's a great movie. And it's, you know, and she gained so much weight.
3: <laughs> you know, what? I, mean, I never got a laugh. When we were like doing press for that movie, the journalist would always go, Charlize, like... You gained forty pounds for this movie. That's so incredibly brave. And I would always be like, I guess I've been brave my whole life. You know what I mean? Because like <laughs> with her forty pounds, she was like the you know the size I am now. And it was just like, but nobody laughed. I guess it was just an uncomfortable thing to say. <laughs> like. <I don't,
4: laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, it's a. I mean, it's great because it's like your, you know, like your voice coming through. And then, you know, here's a very, very major star. Like she's really an incredible person. To oh yeah. Hop, you know, in the in this incredible story, and and that you know she believes in it so much that she's going to really change her. Whole like vibe and appearance, everything. To I mean, she's like really like Robert De Niro in that. It's like her raging bull. She's done it a
3: bunch. Like she three times now. I guess young adult doesn't really count because we just made her kind of sloppy. But like Monster, she did it when she was you know an ingenue. Mm -hmm. She sort of transformed herself from a model, Mm -hmm. really, into like a into into that serial killer. And then uh, you know, and yeah, she did it again for Tully, and she really did it too. Yeah. But um, and she's just like brilliant
4: yeah she's brilliant she's just
3: the coolest like it's sort of like it's sort of uncool to look like her and be talented but it's but, great
4: yeah it is great it's great and that that's sec- what i i love about her is that sort of that secret thing is like she doesn't care like she is yes definitely the face of like the perfume but still like willing to go there for these parts that are really incredible you know she yeah. has really good taste in like the projects she chooses and every time i see her like i'm like Oh, this is great. That's why Tully was so great. That's why, you know, all, like, Monster is, is extraordinary. Yeah. I love, like, all the, the Mad Max Road Warrior kind of... She's, she she always picks the
3: coolest stuff, and I'm actually... She doesn't know this, but I'm writing something for her right now, and when I'm writing it, I always think to myself, like, maybe she won't want to do this because nobody saw Tully. And then I was like, no, I actually think she will because yeah. she has, like, cool taste. She does. And she knows that even though Tully bombed, like, that it was good. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think I could rope her back in.
4: Yes. <laughs> but I think the movie has, like, you know, it, it's so great that it's, like... They have a legacy, and that that we can we watch movies in a different way now, and it's it's like things like that, like maybe people going back and revisit you know it's different like because movies are so accessible in a way that they weren't before. That, that is true. now we true. have more of a range of like ways to consume them and get them.
3: That is really a silver lining is like people are now a- able to, you know, stream anything the moment it occurs to them. Yeah. So if they're curious, they can check it out. It's it's definitely, that's that aspect of it is cool. Yeah. And like
4: young people finding your stuff. Like mm-hmm. that's cool. It's really cool. It's really cool. And it's really like, I mean, I think that's one of the great things about film now. I mean, because before... We would have to like go to um, either Eddie Brandt's Saturday Rewind or um, these weird video stores like Vidiots or oh, something. The yeah. video ar- archive isn't like, you know, go back and get like a giant, you know, VHS tape and then, you know, watch it with all the tracking issues and everything. That was
3: so fun though. And it was also kind of like an eat it or beat it vibe where like even if it sucked, you watch the whole thing. You, you had rented to. it, And now I think you can just like. Exit
4: <laughs> Well yeah You can exit and But it's it's just Like I really value The time that we have Now with film And you know Having like channels Like well Filmstruck Is gone But uh, Criterion Is pretty good Then the yeah. Criterion Is really really good It is They should do a re- Your retrospective On Criterion
3: I mean That would be really cool That
4: would be really cool <laughs>
3: I mean I don't I've never gotten the criterion treatment before, but
4: I know, you should. I mean it's just it's just the right thing. It would be cool. It thank would be you. really cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna make that comment when I when I pay my eighty dollars. Okay, time, thank you. Please please do. Free up. Yeah. But it's yeah, I mean it would be really I mean it would be fitting because your work is genius.
3: So is yours. Thank it's
4: really you. meaningful to me to hear you say those things. So well, I, I love you and thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you. This has been a, a privilege. And now we have an interview with Dirk Denher and SR Sharp. They are coming from the Tom of Finland Foundation. Tom of Finland, of course, amazing legendary artist whose work redefined what it meant to be a gay man and uh, they keep his legacy going and it's a it's a really fun talk.
1: FlushCare.com/slash/weightloss.
4: Thank you um, for uh, coming in and talking. I I can't believe we haven't we haven't met, but I have been over to the house.
0: Yeah, I was not there, but I've seen your pictures. Yes, standing in front of the Santa.
4: Oh yes, it's wonderful, and um, I love that the house is there so that people can go and see the artwork and see just the history of everything. And then I wasn't able to go in the dungeon, but I did get to smell it.
1: <laughs> well, you it's have not like a dungeon. You yeah. have to earn the dungeon.
4: Yeah, you have to earn it. But it, yeah, it smelled like piss and leather, but not like in an overpowering way. It was almost like a few days after a party, maybe.
0: Yeah, maybe like after uh, thirty years.
4: <laughs> so, yeah of, of of piss and leather, and <laughs> yeah. did it smell like your a fragrance with uh, Atat-Libre d'Orange?
0: That's what they thought. It should, everyone
1: thought it should smell like. But uh, so with the perfume, the uh, perfumer's uh, mistress wrote um, the text to describe what the perfume invoked. Mm -hmm. And she imagined two people just having sex Mm -hmm. and then not showering but rinsing off in a clear river waterfall.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: So
1: you still had residual sex on you? Yeah. It just wasn't scrubbed off. Right. Right
4: which I think is very sensual. I mean the the fragrance actually to me it really does when you when you smell it you see the men from the drawings. You know, you see the men from the art. You see you it's got leather and it's got like a a, a depth to it. That's that's really I think rich and, you know, very beautiful. And you know, you would never think like, "Oh, what should this smell like? This should smell like Tom of Finland."
1: That's really powerful because Uh, scent uh, is the only sense we have that's unfiltered. Mm. So what you smell goes instantly to your brain. Mm -hmm. And so it just registers. You don't process it, think about it. It's just, it's exactly what's there, what you smell is what you see.
4: The memories um, come back really unedited. Exactly. it's it's marvelous. I mean, I think there's so many things about Tom of Finland that I find so um, fascinating. When I was actually in Finland... I was like, it's so strange that he, from this amazing like erotic like imagination and ability to recreate it on, on paper that, that, you know, here's this place. To me, there's something very not erotic about Finland. It's very cold.
0: What time <laughs> of year were you there?
4: I was there in December. Oh. Okay. So it's, it's very cold. Well, well, actually, maybe that makes for an eroticism because everybody's inside and you have to do things because you can't go outside because it's so cold outside.
0: But they love Christmas.
4: They do love Christmas, and they do love. Um, they are beautiful people, the Finnish are, are are beautiful and very sensual. Yes. In in that kind of Nordic yes, Nordic way way with their like um, all the berries that they have and all the the. Um... I've
0: never been st- sort of nakedly stripped by by eyes than from Finnish women's eyes. Mm. I've walked play, and they will just. Just as men have done to women for, for centuries, mm-hmm. women in Finland do it to the men. Yes. And, oh, they
1: give you a once over up and down. Yeah,
0: and they just they, they focus and you can just feel
1: they're like envisioning you without any clothes. Yeah. But without clothes, because of the culture of the sauna, they're naked in front of everybody all the time. Right. So it, it's like, we had, a, I worked on the Tom film movie and the rap party was in a sauna. Mm-hmm. And I said, do I really want to see like my coworkers naked? Mm. Like if I get a new job, do I want to know how big his dick is? <laughs> you know, it's, and you can't help, you know, you just can't try and look at them in the eye. But they mm-hmm. don't look but at you it that way. But yeah. you can't help, but you know, the eyes wander a but bit. But they don't right. think of it that way. No. no, because it's not eroticized. Yeah.
4: No, and it's it's why you know well that well, for me like the Tama of Finland like the the characters are always to me very clothed even if they're not actually wearing clothes the they, the clothes are coming off. You yes. Know? There's a kind of like the costuming is really integral to the eroticism.
0: It is very much part, and about the the taking on and the taking and putting on. Is both ways eroticized in Tom's drawings?
4: Mm-hmm. Or like an element is on, like yes,
0: if the
1: yes. shirt is
4: still on but the pants are off. Yes, you know.
1: Do you think naked sexy?
4: Naked is um, it can be. It depends on I guess where you are and, and sort of what you're about. Um, naked is not as sexy as a little bit clothed. a lot clothed Mm -hmm. you know because the fetishism of uniforms the fetishism of leather and even well I'm not a latex fan as much but I love leather I love the smell of leather I love the kind of skin against skin so if it's leather on naked skin I think is highly erotic I love that kind of and also like you know, harnesses, the the metal work on there, it it just adds so much. Um so yeah, that's what I find really beautiful and sexy. So naked is sexy if it's kind of but it's more sexy if it's in context with something like that.
1: Yeah, Tom felt pretty much the same way. He yeah. thought the uh the nude male was beautiful. appealing and <laughs> beautiful. beautiful. But, but to him to be sexy you had to have something on. Yeah.
4: Yeah. It's all of the trappings and all of, it's all the fixins.
0: Yep. <laughs> it's like a turkey dinner.
4: <laughs> yeah. You want like the cranberry sauce and yeah. the collar yeah. and it all of that. Because when we're
1: naked, we're just, that's without choice. But right. all the choices we make, how we present ourselves, how we groom ourselves, the environment, what we wear are all projections of what we want to have. Right. And so that makes it ultimately sexy
0: for me. You yeah. know, I just want to tell you a short story that Sharp and I just took a short vacation in Finland for mm-hmm. for 10 days and uh, we uh, a friend of ours invited us to her country home and we had sauna mm-hmm. and and then we went and we jumped in the lake mm. uh and uh, to uh, cool and there was <clears throat> I'm not sure was it a little boy or was it a little girl it I was I think
1: you can say just a little child a
0: little child maybe maybe 8 or 9 years old fishing and watch the, the two of us unrobe you know with all of our tattoos all over our body and and mm-hmm. jump into the water and it was just it was a it was an eye opening wasn't it <laughs> yeah i think so
4: yeah well that's the, that's also the the shock of like being in the sauna and then going in this like bracing icy water you know Yes. That, that's like just sets you on a turns it's you like alive it's like a
1: death yeah. wish it is it's crazy it's crazy, crazy. No. and is they crazy. do it in summer and winter like they mm. chip holes in the ice mm-hmm. so they can jump into the water in the wintertime.
4: I think it's like the this um desperation to really feel and get to the the bones of something. Like it's like they wanna have like so it is sensual country because they love like to be hit with the branches. Yes. They love that juniper. Yeah. You know, it's like this thing of like they want a lot of blood on their skin.
0: Well not so much blood, but they want to feel the wrap of it. Right. And and you know the thing about it is that Finns, I I realized after because I've been going there for for so many years that I started to realize that if they don't get to go to the country with some sense of regularity, they actually get rather squirrely. Mm-hmm. They get really sort of like an animal that's pent up, mm-hmm. and 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 when you go to the country, it's not about going and 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 being with other people. You know, like barbecuing all the time. It's about going and isolating, going off by yourself as a lone individual, away from the cabins, often and for a, a deep walk by yourself. It's about the way their connection with nature. You know. Yeah. And referring back to Tom, I mean, the thing that uh, that he was so uh, intuitive with is that. The first drawings that he introduced to the United States back in starting in 1957 were drawings of of young loggers out in the woods,
4: mm.
0: having being with each other, being by themselves with Mother Nature, with sun and water and and uh, daylight and 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 that messaging was the actual messaging that really sort of got him going in America and really started to get young guys really sort of having positive thinking, role modeling. So it was those nature drawings that were really the the beginning that really sort of spurred him and got uh, such a fan base.
4: Mm, that's incredible. That's incredible. I mean, I think like... When we think about his drawings, when I look at his drawings, I mean, for me, what they really do is they kind of codify gayness in a way that is so beautiful, because it's like, like in, in society, we're just sort of the freaky bunch. <laughs> like, yep. We're like the misfits of the world. But in Thomas of Finland's artwork, you're looking at gay men in a totally different, idealized fashion that, that really is based in truth. Yep. But is also very much like, these guys are just perfect and heroic and mystical and yes, it's very yes. like, you know, it's it's satisfying.
1: Yes. And also the subliminal message is where are they doing it? Mm-hmm. They're not cowering in dark rooms or no. stuffed in the back alleys. Mm-mm. They're out in front of nature. Yeah. In the sunshine, in mm-hmm. trees, in a very wholesome environment. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with with Mother Nature looking down on them. Yeah. You know, bestowing her permission on them. Yes. And so I think that's when you look at his whole body of work. Yes, there's lots of trees and lakes, and that's the culture of Finland. Yeah. But mm-hmm. they're doing it out of doors without shame. Yeah. And they're not hiding from anyone.
4: No, and they're all smiling. Usually, it's like yes. you see the smile through the mustache. You see like this lantern jaw, the strength of like their arms, the power, and the physique. And it's also... There's just like a very prideful kind of presentation of sex. And it's like this masculine modeling that gay people, we would never got to have.
0: Yes. And, you know, it's, uh, I have to say that it's it's, all of these years that I have been uh, doing uh, public events and going to exhibitions and talking to the visitors and that, it's transcendent in that it communicates that not just to homosexual men but to everybody mm-hmm. and that anyone who actually has an open mind they can identify and they can experience it as you do yeah and and it's sort of it's sort of breathtaking for me still at all of these years later that he touches people that way you know. Yeah.
4: It's mystical, and it's, it's mystical. It is. It's also like about leather too, and about submission and domination. Yes. That's also very like wholesome, you know, the Which way is, that it's presented.
0: You know, I, I've often thought that S and M, as it's called, because um, my uh, beginning years in my youth were uh, about uh, m- meditation and about surrendering,
4: mm. and
0: surrendering and submission are of the same ilk. You know, mm-hmm. and so it's really about how, how you know that whole play is really uh, a, a, about vulnerability and about opening up and and surrendering, and that there's a master, and the master knows, and he and you surrender unto it. You know, mm-hmm. so it's the whole leather SM thing has really got a, a, a mystical and very uh, um, theoretical and and. Uh, part to it also
4: yeah because it's like ritual and then you're um using the pain to get to another place you know it's transformative and um but that's what i really see and that's why i love that the the fragrance is got so much leather in it you know brings out that fetishistic kind of ritualistic side
1: it's very complex. There's lots of notes. Mm-hmm. So when we were developing it, there was a lot of FedEx between L.A. and Paris.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the noses came out here, and we finally did an intensive together, but there was a lot of this. And we kept saying, yes, 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 but you're missing something, mm-hmm. and that was trees.
4: Oh, yes.
1: So there was no tree there was yeah. no bark no needle no wood mm-hmm. and that's the th- and that they went ah so they added a note of spruce i believe yeah. but it's very mm-hmm. complex lots of notes but yeah they need a little tree in there
4: well you need like what is it like you need something to uh, be tied to like a tree you need to be <laughs> right. tied to a tree
1: right or something. of course so that's
4: the kind of like that's what i think is important
0: I think they call you holistic,
4: <laughs> yes, very holistic, and I think it's like um yeah it's it's a perfect thing, you know, because you have all of these kinds of different things coming out of Tom's legacy, whether it's uh, perfume or it's um this house, it's all the artwork and and all of the different kinds of events, like Daddy Wood, which is great. I'm sad I couldn't have gone, but I loved i love I was watching it, I thought it would look so amazing.
1: we'll get you at the next one.
4: yes. It's a great, like, it was sort of this big outdoor festival where you had lots of different entertainers like Brook Candy and all sorts of people uh, playing. And, and the, it was there a daddy contest?
1: Yes, we had the uh, a crowd pleaser, the best butt contest. Oh, good. Yeah. And when you looked out, it was an amazing day. It really was. And you said, oh, my gosh, this is who we are. Yeah. I mean, it was completely diverse and completely all ages. And Mm -hmm. I said, this is really what Tom has brought us all to be.
4: Yeah. Yeah,
1: it was very cool. It was a special day.
4: I love that. Now, how did you both um, both separately and how did you uh, encounter Tom? Like, how did you meet? How did this all begin?
0: When I was 26, I... uh, I moved to New York and uh, I'm Canadian born. And, and then I uh, was living in different cities in America and then um, Hawaii too. And then I actually uh, ended up moving to New York. And when I was in New York, I was sort of uh, well exploring and being sort of the toast of the town as a young guy. And uh, I saw a, a a poster of his on a wall in a bar and it just spoke to me. Mm. It, it, it 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 just pulled me to it and it spoke to me. And I, I, I took the poster and I took it off the wall of the bar and I, I rolled it up. And the next day, since I'd won this leather contest in that bar, I actually was given a photo shoot. And I went to the photo shoot and there was another artist there. And I showed this artist whose name was Etienne. I said, Etienne, who is this? And he says, oh, that's Tom of Finland. And, uh, and he says, do you like him? And I said, you know... I do but it's more than just like in that it it had this kind of pull a magnetism for me and uh and so he says well i have his address if you want to write him and so i said okay so i wrote him a fan letter and just told him about how i felt and and what happened to me and he responded back and uh, we stayed in touch and then a year later uh, i had moved back to california to los angeles and he let me know that he was coming here. And I said, well, why don't you let me host you? And so I did. And I hosted him for two weeks. And um, and out of that, um, we went to San Francisco. And that's where he met Robert Maplethorpe for the first time. And I got to see these throngs of young men coming up to him. Because I didn't grow up with his work. But I knew it, what had happened to me, that emotional experience. And they started telling him, how important he was in their development. One young guy after another, after another, and, and they were from all different parts of America. And I said, you know, this guy has done, he's, he's, good, he's a really good artist, but he's done more than just be a good artist. He's affected change. He's changed the way people think about themselves. And so I made a commitment to him uh, and to myself, really, uh, that I was going to do everything I could to make his life uh, be as good as it could be for the rest of his life. Mm. And so that's when um, I committed to uh, starting with exhibitions and then starting with setting up a mail order company for him and then setting up a publishing firm and then setting up uh, the Thomas Finland Foundation and uh, everything that he... So the 80s, when he lived in California and he lived in the house, uh, that you've been to, it was like, I mean, I wish in my sixties and this was, he was in his sixties. I lived a good life, but I didn't live as good a life as I gave him. Uh I gave him a great life and, and, uh, and well worth it. Well, Mm -hmm. well deserved, you know, and, and he thanked me for that. He said that, that I kept him young Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that, uh, that I guess I did. And, uh, that's how I met him. And then I met Sharp. Mm-hmm. And Sharp, go ahead, Sharp.
1: No, I was just going to say that I always, when I look at the, the biography, I always think that Tom got to be Tom 24-7 yeah. when he came to L.A. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He got to live that life he had been drawing on paper. Mm-hmm. Um. He was born Tolko was his name, which is sort of a funny name like Elmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he chose Tom for his artist name. But uh, in California, he had the light, uh, ethnic diversity, um, a, a large fan base. And I think you gave him the life that he had always drawn. You know, he was able to be with the guys and go to bars. Mm-hmm. And and he had sort of created an era mm-hmm. and was sort of chronicling an era that he created. Yeah. So he was very much a part of the guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was just, it was...
0: It was very moving for him. It was vahala, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. His vahala. You know, he had, he had, he didn't know. You know, there's, a, there's a uh, an interview that's on um, on uh, YouTube uh, where he is in, being up at Kell Arts and he's uh, being asked a question about whether he always intended to uh, to do this to to affect uh, the culture this way, and he said, well. And being very Finnish, he was very modest about it. He said, you know, um, it's sort of presumptuous for me to say this, but but right from the beginning, from the get-go, I always wanted to see if I could affect change. And he says, and now, you know, in my 60s, it's such a pleasure to see gays happy and and loving each other so openly Mm -hmm. and so he got to experience that that experience being in his 60s living in California and uh, and he loved the diversity uh, and he loved uh, how open things were Mm -hmm. and so it really was uh, extremely satisfying for him
4: yeah that's wonderful and that did you use the dungeon a lot then?
0: <laughs> well, the dungeon was 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 there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was there in the in the uh, in the eighties. That dungeon, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yes. Of course, it had a Kenmore washer and dryer oh, in wow. it. Oh,
0: Do you want to hear that story? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Okay, so we it, it was actually Maytag.
1: Well, well, California basements, if people have them, mm-hmm. aren't like East Coast basements. Yeah. There's small things. They just mm-hmm. use the water heater, you know, yeah. the, the plant stuff. So they're not like East Coast basements, So yeah. it's
0: small. So, anyways, uh, the washer was having problems, and so we had to. Um, we had a, a female uh, administrator then, and I was not even home, and I was I had a day job, and uh, anyways, she took him down the stairs to the dungeon, and he took one look around, and he ran out of that oh house my as goodness. fast as he could. <laughs> And never to return. That's great. So we had to call another company. Oh. Of course they were painted matte black. Yes. Of course. Yes. It's butch. You yes. have to. Butch appliances. It's
1: got
4: to be butch. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> now you still have like these parties like um, Daddywood and things. you still have sex parties there? That would be a good venue for a sex party, I think.
0: Well, we don't like to publicize it publicly, <laughs> uh, but uh, there is we do one a year that uh, that is uh devoted to that and there's a group of guys they are uh, what is their names
1: yes we do have adult only parties yeah
0: but the the beauty is that we have the pleasure park mm-hmm. and the pleasure park is is um it's sort of our rendition of, of, of a, a nice place for people to meander. Mm-hmm. And so they meander and just like in any park, they meet up and mm-hmm. they may have words and kisses and maybe they'll smoke a joint together. You yeah,
4: know. yeah, that's nice. And there's a, little,
0: there's a little Sugar Shack down there, which, mm-hmm. you know, we gave it the name Sugar Shack because of the song.
4: Yeah, like I think that's really nice. That's really, that, I mean... It's so romantic.
0: It is, yeah. And also, you know, th- twinkly lights and a yeah. soft breeze. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely got the uh, at nighttime. And I, I don't know if you've been there at
4: nighttime, but no, I, I want you to come of- sometime, yeah,
0: because it is quote a fairyland.
4: I love it. I mean, that's really, that's really fantastic. Do you still um, ever go to things like Folsom Street Fair? I mean, I feel like that kind of thing is like really something that's born out of. Tom Finland's artwork and his vision. And, you know, when you look around Folsom Street Fair, it's just like these drawings come to life.
0: I have been actually uh, going to uh, the European Folsom. Mm. And that happens uh, in September also. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go this year, but it's one of my favorite places to go. And we've been actually sort of making, doing events and uh, exhibitions and had fundraisers in Berlin. So it's been really, I just think that, I'm, gay people are so amazing, mm-hmm. and that uh, th- there was a fundraiser in Berlin uh, last year, which was where um, classic meets fetish, and it was all of these leather dressed uh, musicians playing classical instruments in a church oh. all together, and uh, it was really beautiful. Yeah.
4: Oh, that sounds magical. Yeah. That sounds really great.
0: I love the fact that you use you use terms like magical and mystical yeah. because they really are. There are the gifts.
4: Yeah. Well, it seems like the only appropriate terms because when I think about Tom of Finland and I think about his work and I think about his effect on our society, especially queer society, it is that kind of magic. It's like we can take this vision of masculinity and turn it on to ourselves and think of ourselves as like, not like the weirdos of the world, but these like mystical beings. We
0: are the guides. Yeah. Yes.
4: These giants. You
0: know, I want to really... Uh, for for your viewers who are listening to this is that um, for them to understand that this house uh, contains hundreds and hundreds of different artist works and that we have most of our, our collection is not on exhibit at any one time but that we have literally and it is of every diverse kind of expression and uh, And Tom is sort of the grandfather of it, but there's just all of these expressions. We have emerging artist competitions where, you know, works come in. And and the only rule we have is that they can't have entered and they cannot have sold any of their erotic art prior to entering the contest. But that's the only rule. We feel like there's so many rules in the world that we don't need anymore and that your listeners know that it's really wide range and we have trans work and we have female art and and uh, and just yeah a wide
1: range
4: i love it so it's a gift that keeps giving it keeps on going yes it's a legacy
1: it is a legacy it's a varied garden
4: it's a yeah. it's a varied garden and so people can actually see a, a lot of uh, the different events on your um, instagram on your social media so um I'm going to provide the tags I'll I'll, the, I'll put the handles out there. Oh
1: great, thank you.
4: For you. But I'm um, you know I just I was so glad that and I so excited about your Tomophilia belt buckle. I just saw the Tomophilia belt buckle's did. really good. <laughs> I need one. I mean, yeah, it's so good. And I think like yeah, I think that it's like so much a part of um Gay history, we've got to, like, look to Tom Fenn and look to his work as a really, like, an important part of who we are.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, and he gave us a whole new vocabulary. Mm-hmm. He wanted us to be all that we can be. Yes. Uh, we were sort of relegated to this dark, feminized, womanized, lesser than corner. Mm-hmm. We were allowed to be poofs and sissies, and that's all they let us be. Yeah. And Tom broadened the vocabulary. Yeah. You know, he defended his country in the uniform of his Mm -hmm. country. He said, we can be soldiers and sailors. Absolutely. We can make these choices. Yes. It can be nighttime sailors Mm -hmm. or it can be full-time sailors. Yes. But he uh, just wanted everyone to have a whole lot more to choose from. And I think he sort of leveled the playing field in that... He gave us a strong personal identity, mm-hmm. uh, but also when like straight people look at us, they look at us a little differently. Yeah. Like, oh. Yeah. Oh, they're like, oh yeah, they're, they're like the real us. men, the real they're men. Like us. Yeah, We're-
4: the the real the real deal. It's right. like, did you ever? Um, did he ever co- collaborate with a Fassbender? It seems like that there's sort of a little bit of crossover in Corel yeah. with the with sailors.
0: You know the thing is that uh the uh the maker of Daddy and the Muscle Academy, the documentary that was done on Tom 30 years ago plus cuz he's been gone that long now. Mm-hmm. And uh he he used Fastbender and he used uh parts of Corral and and all of these different uh because but they were all happening actually almost at the same time. Yeah. And and they were tapping into each other, but they don't phys- they never physically met each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: It seems like it was like this kind of thing was happening in the in the universe that yep. they both needed to look to these male archetypes to gain strength. Yes, of of you know to support their own like coming out stories, their identity.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And you know the thing is that every era has its own lessons, and the thing about it is that there was an era in the nineties uh, when uh, queer nation was just coming about, mm-hmm. um, when they didn't understand Tom. Because they they felt like he was like a, a sellout that he was just doing the straight uh, macho heterosexual aspect, and I we had to explain to them, no, 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 you don't understand. He created this and brought this forward when it was not allowed. It was not permitted to give to be given to us. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, our fathers would not give it to us right. because we were not. Uh, we were not approved of, mm-hmm. and uh, and he became our father. Exactly, and he is the one that dispensed it out to all of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it's it's really, and it's also about now that we're in a, a state of uh, non-binary. It's about not taking things away, but adding things to it.
4: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: we just have to us elders have to remind the younger ones. No, just add more to it. So that you have more of a selection.
4: Exactly. I love that. And I think that's right. It is like that Tom was really a kind of a divine father figure. Yeah. That he was helping usher in this idea of like divine masculinity, you know, to compete with all of the gay stereotypes that we all, that's all we had. Right. You know, and and this is like really something to bring us into adulthood.
0: You know, Margaret, I have to tell you, I mean... um, I'm sort of emotional today. I have no idea why. I'm not going through menstruation today. <laughs> but I disemotional. But but you have a way of, of speaking about us that is so um so mature and so um clear. so clear mm. and i just really appreciate that
4: Oh, well, thank you yeah. well i really i really revere what you've been able to do with his legacy and you know you keep him alive in such a ma- amazing way and it's really young and vital yes you know it and is. it's great yeah. well i'm so glad and you're so special both of you thank you so much for joining me today
1: Thank you for having us. Thank
4: you. I'm so glad that we got to speak. Thank you.
1: Thank you, dear. Bye.
4: Come see me do comedy. I'll be at the Lucky Eagle Casino in Rochester, the Laugh Out Loud Comedy Club in San Antonio, uh, the Improv in Washington, D.C., Wise Guys at the Gateway in Salt Lake City, and uh, Club Regent Casino in Winnipeg, and the River Cree Resort and Casino in Enoch. But you can find all of my dates, And whatever you need to know at MargaretChow.com.
2: Never miss an episode of The Margaret Show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Margaret Show is an ERIO's production with editing by Kat Hong and original music by Garrison Starr.